Loretta, welcome to the Espion Menopause podcast. Thank you so much for coming here today. Sure, it's a pleasure. I've been a big fan of your work since about 2017, and I've got your book here, Habits of a Happy Brain. And I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the call today to give us some tips for menopause and to give us your insights on how we can cope and thrive through it. So would you like to explain a little bit about the the brain chemicals and and also the way you look at things? Well, I've written a lot of books on this. So how can I say this in a few sentences? Um, So I grew up around a lot of unhappiness, like many people. And I was always trying to understand why people were unhappy. And I embraced the academic psychology worldview when I left home. And that gave me the feeling like many people have today is like, oh, now I know the science. So now I'm going to do everything by the book. And now everything's going to go right. And as you surely understand (laughs) it didn't work out that way. And so that's why I became more open to other kind of information. And as you know, there are many people out there selling alternative perspectives, and none of them fully persuaded me until I learned about the animal brain. And I read a little mention of one familiar chemical and how it works in monkeys and another familiar chemical and how it works in monkeys. And I was like, oh, my God, uh, monkeys have the same brain chemicals that we have. And in monkeys, it's very easy to see what impact the chemical has on behavior because they don't try to cover it up. They don't have enough brains to cover it up. So it showed me that this is really what is causing our ups and downs. That's fabulous because um, these monkeys aren't going to university and being told how they're supposed to be behaving. (laughs) (laughs) A friend said to me, please ask Loretta what makes serotonin because she suffers from huge anxiety. Uh, It sounds like she's combining the concept of anxiety with the concept of depression with the concept of just feeling down in general. And that's fine. But as people know, in the disease model of mental health, it's purported that one chemical problem is solved by one pill and another chemical problem is another pill. So serotonin is what is widely discussed in the context of antidepressants and depression, while anxiety is um, discussed in terms of cortisol, which is the perception of threat, and then different medications are prescribed for that. So this person is lumping it all together, which is actually more realistic (laughs) from the perspective of the animal brain. But there's a huge element that I think she's left out. So what I explain in all of my books is that animals like monkeys and all mammals, but studied the most in monkeys, they're very hierarchical. They're very concerned with like, how do you rank against me? How do I rank against you? And they do this not because of abstract philosophical motivations, but because their brain releases a good feeling chemical, serotonin, when they see themselves in a one-up position, and a bad feeling chemical, cortisol, when they see themselves in the one-down position. 
So we love the feeling of serotonin because it tells us I'm stronger than the monkey next to me so I can get the banana. So it's not aggression, but it's the calm, safe feeling that I have no problem getting enough bananas to survive. And that's what our inner mammal is looking for. And yet, when you have enough bananas, <laughs> you drive yourself crazy about being in the one-up position because you know that any moment a stronger monkey can come along and push you away and take all the bananas. So this is how our inner mammal is thinking all the time, but no one can admit it to themselves. And this is why we all drive ourselves crazy over how we stack up against others. So like I said, that's a very short explanation. Um, my, I have a, a webpage on serotonin it's called innermammalinstitute.org slash serotonin. Perfect. What you said about getting everything confused, I think it's quite common because, you know, I don't think everyday people tend to think of all the different chemical names. It's quite easy to get things jumbled up. So I'm glad you explained that. Um, well, also, you know, in the modern world, there's this um, euphemism called a chemical imbalance. And that presumes that there's this one right textbook correct chemistry which is the impression we've gotten from other like blood work and things like that. And then if you don't have this right chemistry, that then something goes wrong. And this is really not the whole story. It's very mm, mis it's a, it's a story that was created by the pharmaceutical industry when they needed a way to sell a chemical that was reputed to make you feel better. Aha, uh -huh. this is sounding suspiciously like um, making women feel they have to take things and that there's this mystical thing that they're not achieving. Yes. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so if we go straight to menopause when our hormones are changing and it's a natural thing that we go through and it's sometimes a little bit taboo to talk about it and then doctors really want to get you swallowing tablets and doing all sorts of things. There's this whole sort of medical sense that there's a problem and that you have to take something chemical to fix it. What would you say to your younger self going back to the menopause to deal with the ups and downs and the changes, you know, with the information you now have? Well, I must tell you the whole story here. Um, <laughs> um, so just months before I was officially aware of my menopause, I, I did the midlife crisis thing of um, leaving my marriage <laughs> and starting over. So I was sort of having the best time of my life at that point. I don't want to make it sound like that's the solution. <laughs> because that, you know, you pay a high price for that. And I paid a high price for that. Each person interprets the feelings of menopause with neural pathways built from their own past experience. So our brains are wired by our early experience because we're born with billions of neurons, but almost no connections between them. So each of us gets wired up by our own early experience. We all have ups and downs because our happy chemicals are not designed to be on all the time. And our threat chemicals are, are part of our danger awareness system. So we all go through life sort of looking for threats and rewards with neural pathways built when we're young. So whenever you feel bad, you have those old pathways 
uh, telling you what the problem is and what the solution is. Now, one possible solution is to say, oh, I must, I must have a disease and I'll go to the doctor and the doctor will tell me, oh, this is what's wrong with you. Take this and then you'll feel better. So many people uh, interpret their feelings in that way because that's what we're widely exposed to. And that's what everyone around you thinks. Um, I was less exposed to that and I was more exposed to, I guess, um, this idea of, you know, it was maybe it was more popular in the past and, you know, in the eighties, let's say of your, um, early childhood pain that you need to release. So maybe that's why I was more going down that pathway. So for people that aren't sort of going through relationship troubles at the menopause time, one person might interpret it physically, another might interpret it emotionally, another person might call it burnout and blame it on their career. Another person might... um, ask all their friends and get 10 different opinions. You know? Our brain evolved to promote the survival of our genes. So that's what your brain cares about, even though you don't consciously think that. Now, what does that mean to promote the survival of your genes? It means anytime you do things that promote the survival of your genes, that's when happy chemicals are released. So in the monkey world, finding food and finding a mate that triggers your happy chemicals. Now, in the modern world, we have enough food, so we don't get as much happy chemicals that way. And when we're young, we're very busy trying to find a mate, trying to reproduce, trying to take care of our kids. But once that urgency is over, then it's like, now I don't even know what's going to trigger my happy chemicals. So the minute you stop triggering happy chemicals, then you have threat chemicals. So the threat is the awareness of our own mortality. And monkeys are not aware of their own mortality, but the human brain can conceptualize the future. And we know there's a future we will not be part of. So this is really like hitting us over the head of like, I'm not going to be around forever. I need to do something, but I'm not sure what I should do because all my life I was always in a rush to do certain things and I've done them. So. Oh, that's exactly it because the children are, if you're having children, you've done that, you've raised them, they're fearing for themselves, you've had your career, you've had your mate and you can get to a stage when it's like you don't need to reproduce and it's like, where are you going to get your fun from? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we're uh, really lucky that we have that choice. But if we're not in the habit of making our own choices and filling our own plates, then it just seems like a huge loss. Okay. Now you took up um, learning to waltz, I believe. Was that something that you did to fill your plate up with, with fun? Dancing, waltzing. What I was saying here is I'm giving people a long list of things that they could do of many different varieties. Uh, What I talk about is you need to have a goal. You need to have a short run goal, a long run goal and a middle term goal. So like something like learning to waltz could be a goal if you actually care about that. But I'm not saying you should care about it. Now, I had some interest in that and... That was an example of something 
that went very badly. (laughs) So like I said, I took up a lot of different things. And fortunately, writing books about the mammal brain was the long term goal. And I put most of my energy into that. But you know, those long term goals, we can't spark our happy chemicals all the time that way. So yeah, so I thought waltzing would be good. Now, the funny thing is, I I remarried in menopause, and my new husband was a lover of classical music. So I thought, oh, this would be perfect. And he he listens to classical music all the time, but he had no capacity to dance at all. Like the connection between his ears and his feet was non-existent. (laughs) And I'm not being critical. I mean, he felt the same way. He hated it. And as much as I might have persevered in another context, I thought, well, I guess this is not going to be the <laughs> the new hobby for me. And another thing, ironically, is um, we took these lessons. It was very exciting. If you imagine like hundreds of people in this ballroom, listening to historical music, taking the lessons, dressing up. But this historical ballroom was crumbling and it was full of mold. And I was very sensitive to the mold. So I was very happy to get out of that building also. <laughs> Something like dancing where you're going to be so close to someone, if it's not fun for the other person, then it's it's a bit of a downer for yeah, you. So. I mean, if I really, really <laughs> wanted to do it, I could have done it without him. And many people take dancing lessons without their partner. But it was not that high on my agenda. And there were other things that I found to do both myself and with him. Okay. I'm kind of getting the feeling that sort of menopause, it's time for women to think of uh, what are the things you wanted to do with your life, like picking up hobbies that you'd stopped or trying new things, just using the time that way for expanding creatively. Yes, but um, just hobbies alone won't be um, stimulating enough dopamine if you don't have a goal. Now, a person might say, I'm already too busy. And in that case, well, maybe you already have other goals. But in the past, goals were forced on you. Like when you're in your first year of college, you know, your goal is to finish college. And like, you've always had some goal, you know, get a job, get promoted, get your kid into this or this. And then at some point, you have no more goals forced on you. And goals are really steps toward a goal are what stimulate dopamine. So if you don't know how to create your own goal, you deprive yourself of dopamine. Now, that's interesting because you're right. It was always, it was a list of things that you had to do. And then you get to a stage when you've either achieved those goals or suddenly the goals that were given from the outside actually don't have any appeal to you. Correct. So what do people do who who don't want to get the newest car and the bigger house and be chasing those things? So um, what should people do? So everyone has to find their own goal that's meaningful to them. So there's no one thing. So that's why I'm not so hot on like people asking me for like, (laughs) like a formula or like a a hack. Um, What makes a goal meaningful is the neural pathways built in youth. So what everyone is basically trying to do is give themselves whatever they were missing when they were young. Now, sometimes you do that in a bad way. So a familiar example would be, if you didn't have enough food when you were young, then you might overeat. If you 
weren't cool when you were young, then maybe you are harming your body in a certain way because that was the way to be cool. So then you need to know how to uh, give yourself a new goal. So sometimes you use these early lacks in a bad way, but you can find a good way to give yourself that because that's really what makes something meaningful. But it has to be meaningful to you. So if it's only to rescue someone else, because when you were a child, you learned, excuse me, that rescuing path to feeling good, that's going to have problems. So you have to take this enormous step of saying what is important to me rather than just rescuing others. There's a definite sort of pressure or idea that women should be rescuing people. Yes, well, also you can end up being annoying because when you are quote-unquote helping others, you're really interfering in decisions that they'd rather make themselves. And I'm always aware that um, men have the same issue, that they very much want to protect and help and rescue. And they can also make bad choices by rescuing others in ways that make things worse off. You you mentioned um, cortisol earlier um, in the conversation. Moving sort of towards like skincare things, we've been told that if your cortisol levels are high all the time, you actually, that affects your skin. And um, how, how do people manage their cortisol levels without using like pharmaceuticals? I mean, what would be some simple ways to that people could explore? Sure. I was just writing about this this morning and I have a book on it called Tame Your Anxiety. Um, so we hear a lot of things about cortisol. So I agree with the idea that it is the stress chemical, but I don't agree with the idea that society causes your stress. So when you have an unmet need, cortisol is your signal that you need to do something about it. So for example, when a monkey wakes up in the morning, it's hungry. Low glucose triggers cortisol. It says, you better do something about this or else you're going to be in trouble. Now, if a monkey waits until it's dying of starvation, then it won't have enough energy to look for food. So cortisol is like that advanced warning system that says, you better get going. This need, this need needs to be met. So how do you define the need and how do you define meeting it? Well, we all do it with neural pathways built from past experience. So we're always anticipating things that could go wrong. And the minute you've solved a problem, your brain goes on to anticipate the next thing that could go wrong. So we need to see ourselves doing this and notice the pathways we've built and see that it's a pattern. So we could see that we're creating this threatened feeling ourselves so that we feel like we have power over it. Otherwise, we think, oh, there's nothing I can do about it because the world stinks. That also leads to people not enjoying whatever you've got at the moment because you're always worrying that you're going to lose it. So you work towards something that you don't actually um, appreciate when, when you get there. Absolutely, absolutely. And an interesting way to do this, um, there are so many ways that I mentioned, but I, I was just listening to this. So when you hear someone else talk that you sort of respect and listen to their 
worry and fear that they're going to lose what they have and say, everybody worries about this. This is the natural way the brain works. So I don't have to think something's wrong with me. I don't have to think something's wrong with my niche in the world. But this is just how people think. And I can really take pride in myself by noticing this pattern and managing it. And like I notice, wow, even young people with a lot of energy constantly worry about things going wrong. People with unlimited money constantly worry about things going wrong. People who are really nice constantly, where everybody worries about it. If you look back in your life and like a role model or like a grandparent, was there advice that you received when you were younger that at the time you didn't really understand it and and that would be advice that was really precious? When I was young, you get this advice that you shouldn't let your emotions have so much power and you shouldn't accept the idea that you're wired by past experience and it's just a weakness if you think your childhood experiences had an impact on you. But it's just a fact of life. And that doesn't mean to use it as an excuse. It means that if you don't know that you're wired by this emotional brain that we've inherited from earlier animals that's wired when you're a child, then you confuse all those emotions with the facts about the world around you and you intellectualize about it and you rationalize and you find evidence to prove that your emotions are really caused by like, they really are out to get me. creating disasters and looking for disasters to to justify what okay I've been told that if you don't have the full range of emotions like if you tamper down ever feeling really sad then you then you can never be really happy um is is that true if if you just try and be constantly in the middle that you end up losing the good and the bad um how does that work in our bodies sure well I think we should distinguish between being in the middle pharmaceutically versus being in the middle because of skills that you've built in your brain. So let's talk about the skill because that's what we don't hear that much about. So you could think of the mammalian operating system as like uh, the, the gears in a car, that it goes forward or reverse or it can be in neutral. So when you're going forward, it's because your brain sees an opportunity for a reward. And it's like, wow, go get that. I want to go get that because that's going to meet my needs. When you, And so the good feeling is a chemical that both feels good and motivates that action of going forward. And it's because your pathway tells you that this is going to be good for you. Now, when you feel bad, This reverse gear is a chemical based on a pathway that tells you this is going to be bad for me. I better avoid it. So those decisions, good for me or bad for me, are based on taking in information from the world around you. So sometimes the information seems to just hit you over the head, but we're really choosing which information we're letting in. So if I'm always looking for bad stuff, I'm going to find it very easily. 
if I'm going always looking for good stuff, well, that has value, but I might even overlook something bad. So being in neutral has a certain value because then I'm not biased by looking for good or bad, but I'm just open to whatever information is there. So that's my definition of being in the middle is I'm open to whatever information is there. The advice like that, you shouldn't have these emotions. You shouldn't let that bother you. That's what I was always telling myself. I I shouldn't let that bother me. So it was a huge relief to say, wow, it really does bother me. That doesn't mean I'm giving it more juice. It means that I can stop lying to myself about it, you know, and trying to run away from it. Everybody has negativity circuits. So it's just becoming aware of our own individual negativity circuits. And it's really hard not to have them because people bond around negativity. So once you stop being negative, people might say, well, who do you think you are? You know? Okay. And then you also get the um, Schadenfreude as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, right. Well, I had a, a chat with um, Chet. GPT AI um, a couple of weeks ago, and I actually I was actually asking them um, it. I don't know if is it a he, she, or whatever. (laughs) But the the conversation I said, is there a question you have for for humans, or what don't you understand about humans? And Chat GPT said emotions. (laughs) It was so funny. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Oh no! It was it was like the conversation starts off very factual, and then somehow it feels like it switches, and you don't know if it's got sentience built in or whatever it is. But it was actually was asking me about emotions, like. How do you handle them? It was it was really quite oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, so there's, I know. there's a very simple explanation of why emotions are a mystery. So, um, we all have our verbal inner voice that talks to us, and by definition, your verbal inner voice is, comes from the part of the brain that is capable of producing language. But the animal part of the brain is not capable of producing language. So they're like two separate things. So if you rely on what you consciously say to yourself, that's only a small percentage of what's going on in you. And that's why it's so easy to say, oh, I wasn't thinking about that, or I don't care about that. And yet you have these strong feelings that are um, responding to that. Now, um, we may think that these things should be uh, more connected to each other. But um, Steven Pinker gave this example that I liked. He calls it the Swiss army knife theory of the brain, that your brain has like a bunch of different tools, but they're all separate tools. <laughs> um, but again, the, my animal perspective is just that the animal part of your brain that that drives your emotions does not have the capacity for language. So it cannot tell you in words why it's creating a good feeling or a bad feeling. It's just deciding based on whatever chemical, whatever turned on the good feeling or bad feeling in your past created a neural pathway that turns it on today. And the reason that has so much power is that the animal part of your brain connects to your body And your higher brain, your verbal brain, does not connect to your body. Your higher brain only connects to your middle brain. So we need this middle emotional or limbic brain to run our body. So we depend on it. It, It's more in the driver's seat than our actual verbal conscious voice, inner voice. 
Loretta, that's it's very interesting. Um, this animal, whatever part that doesn't have words, and I'm thinking for people on the autistic spectrum who often get asked, how do you feel about that? And often you don't have the words. You don't really, you, you have a feeling inside your body. It's literally in your body, but you don't have the, the nice, neat labels to put on them. And when you're talking about that in the different parts of the brain, I'm I'm starting to think about how the autistic brains wired a bit differently, and I'm not sure if you've covered that in your work. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, this is this is the way I look at it. So everyone is autistic at birth, and then social interaction is learned, and each individual learns it from their own specific experiences. And you, you're surely familiar with the view, like that. Well, you know, a lot of Aspies do not like the idea that neurotypical people are better off. And I, and I agree because neurotypical people are just learning the mode of social interaction that they learn from those around them, those around them. So a simple example would be when I said being in neutral, it's harder for them to be in neutral because they're always seeing the world through the lens built by their the social interactions that they mirrored, so they're less able to look at the information afresh. Okay, that's interesting. And you said all brains start off autistic when when so all babies start off that way. So then the neurotypicals are learning coping mechanisms, or they're learning like I adjusting. Just say they're they're learning. We're all learning expectations. So one expectation is like a baby learns that, you know, if I smile at you, you smile at me. Um, But, or if I say this, then you'll say that. But other people may learn other, other expectations. New experiences can build new pathways, but our biggest pathways are built before age eight and during puberty, because that's when we have a lot of myelin, which is the chemical that insulates neural pathways and makes them super efficient, which is what we experience as like the hardwiring in our brain. Does that mean things that you enjoyed as a teenager, you're going to enjoy more easily later on in life? Yes, absolutely. And in addition, the thing you enjoy even more is whatever relieved pain when you were a teenager, because relieving pain is the mammal brain's highest priority. So you could imagine if an animal is in pain, then they would respond to that. If they're hungry, that whatever is like the biggest threat in each moment, that's what the animal brain focuses on. And whatever succeeds at relieving that pain, your animal brain says, wow, this is great. You really you know, promoted survival. And that this is great feeling builds a big pathway. So everyone is wired by whatever that thing they did when they were a teenager to relieve pain. And I mean, you know, emotional pain as well as physical pain. Mm, That's so interesting. So if you were a lonely teenager, you'd then be finding Facebook or whatever, that sort of dopamine from that really (laughs) addictive almost. One person might find that, another person might find food or video games, another person might gravitate toward the attention of a person who is really unhealthy for them. So whatever uh, whatever is a combination of what you're exposed to and that moment when it worked, when it was like, oh, I feel better, 
that moment is what wired you. Wow. Oh, there's such a, a responsibility having children and trying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Loretta, and you are busy writing a new book now. Are you able to talk a little bit about the content of that and when it'll be available? It's going to be released in January 2024, which is uh, January is considered the saddest month of the year by people who like statistics. And the title of the book is Why You're Unhappy. And all of my other books have focused on happiness. But um, the subtitle of the book is Biology Versus Politics. And I define politics as whatever is popular. And the popular explanations for unhappy uh, distract us from our the facts of our biology. So it's like, how did this happen that we're focused on all these popular messages that are giving us such a distorted view of our own biology. Mm, it sounds intriguing. I will have to um, order a copy because uh, you, you're going to um, unravel some things that will be very practical and useful. Have you got any other messages you'd like to give to women sort of approaching menopause or you know, women where the children are leaving the nest and just like last words that I haven't asked you? Sure. Uh, well, I always like to talk a bit about social comparison because that's so central to the mammal brain. So as much as we hate to admit that we are doing the social comparison thing, we all do it. So a person may not like the idea that someone else is doing it with material possessions, but there are zillions of other ways to do it. So one is by um, enjoying your children's status. So another is with appearance. But as you all know, uh, appearance is not a reliable thing forever for having that one-up feeling. And doing it through your children's status is going to poison your relationship with your children. And denying that you care about social comparison, again, it doesn't really relieve the bad feelings that you have about it. So I wrote a book about this. It's called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop, which is a way to sort of get real with yourself about your urge for social status uh, as wired by your early experience with social status and then set goals for sparking the good feeling in new ways, the, the good feeling of serotonin. Okay, that sounds a great book as well. And uh, that I think the friend that had that question about serotonin, that would be the perfect book for her. Yeah. So, mm, lovely. And these are all available through uh, the Inner Mammal website. Yeah, so the Inner Mammal Institute has a lot of free resources plus information about all of my books. Plus, if you sign up for the newsletter form at the bottom, you get a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart, which is one email explaining each chemical for five days. Um, Loretta, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show, and um, I look forward to seeing your new book. And you've given us so much um, advice and help today. So thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to hear your great questions. Okay. Thank you, Loretta.